Father, we bless and magnify your holy name. And we thank you for the opportunity that we have to be able to study and to meditate your word, knowing that your word is a copy of your mind, your will, your plan, and your purpose toward humanity. And Father, we lend ourselves unto the Spirit of God today. We thank you that He is our teacher and our guide and our comforter. As we approach your word, we do it knowing that it assists in equipping us to do the work of the ministry and to be able to edify and build up the body of Christ. Father, I ask you to fill me with all boldness to proclaim your word. I thank you that it will go forth out of my mouth as a flame of fire and a sharp two-edged sword. I thank you that it will go forth as flaming arrows into our hearts and our minds to burn out the chaff, to tear down the strongholds and the high things that have exalted themselves in our minds against the knowledge of God, thus positioning us to receive the best that you have available to us through the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ and that which he provided for mankind on the cross of Calvary. Father, I thank you that each heart is representation of the good ground that Jesus spoke of in the parable of the sower, and that we will not just be casual hearers of this word, but we will meditate upon this word both day and night until it creates an image on the inside of us, thus enabling and empowering us to be diligent doers and active participants in everything that your word commands. And for everything wrought, both in word and in deed, we thank you, Father, that it is done for the praise and the honor and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in the majesty of his name that we present this petition before your throne. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Let's go on ahead and open up first to the book of Hebrews. We're going to talk to you today about manifestations of a backslidden heart. Manifestations of a backslidden heart. Every single one of us, from time to time, have, well, every one of us have been tempted to cool off in our relationship with God, not to exhibit as much fervency and zealousness toward the things of God as we may have in days gone by. And some of us have yielded over to that temptation. And there's no question about the fact that if we were going to be honest with ourselves, we would have to admit that there have been times when we have yielded over to those temptations and maybe not exhibited the amount of fervency and zealousness toward the things of God that we should have on a constant, everyday, ongoing basis. And yet most people, not, not everybody of course, but most people will end up catching themselves uh, as they begin to become lukewarm, catch themselves as they begin to become half-hearted, and they'll shake themselves and go on ahead and, and repent and turn around and 
get right with God again. And yet you know as well as I do that there are many people out there as well that continued going in that direction, continued uh, becoming more and more lukewarm, more and more half-hearted toward the things of God, more lackadaisical concerning the things of God until they were, well, just plain flat-out backslid. And he tells us right here in Hebrews chapter 10, we'll start in verse 38. It says, Now the just shall live by faith. And it reminds me right there before we go any further, there's a verse over in the book of Romans that says, Anything that is not of faith is sin. <laughs> well, I mean, you, you wouldn't have to meditate on that very long before you, you'd find yourself uh, needing to repent. He said, anything that is not of faith is sin. And in that context, he's talking about eating food. And he said, anybody that eats food that condemns their conscience, he said to them, it would be sin. In other words, if they can't eat it in faith, to them it's sin. But you could use that statement right there to cover your entire Christian walk. Anything that you do for God or anything that you do on a daily basis that is not of faith, that is not founded and pioneered in faith, he said it's sin. So he said the just shall live by faith. I, I like to think of it this way. He did not say the just shall try faith to see if it works and if it doesn't look like it works within a week, they just go on ahead and quit and go back to living in doubt and unbelief. No, he said the just shall live by faith and if any man draw back, or you could say, if any man backslide, <laughs> because that's what drawing back is. If any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. Now, I don't know about you, but I want God's soul to take pleasure in me. Don't you? He says, but we are not of them which draw back unto perdition. In other words, the Spirit had gone through the Apostle Paul said, we've chosen not to be backsliders. Uh, that's what he was saying right there. We are not of them which draw back, but of them which believe to the saving of the soul. And if you go back, I think it's rather interesting that within this same text, in the 24th and the 25th verse, he said, let us consider one another and let us provoke one another unto love and to good works. And then he says that we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as ye see that day approaching. And then if you go back, just... Um, a couple chapters into the third chapter, I think really you could tie these thoughts right in with the ones that we just read. In uh, Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 12, it says, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Now look at this. But exhort one another daily while it is called today lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. 
And that kind of lines up with what Jeremiah has been teaching out of the book of Acts, how that over and over and over again, all throughout the book of Acts, you can see where they didn't consider it an unreasonable demand to go on ahead and assemble themselves together on a daily basis. And so right here he tells us that we should exhort one another daily while it is called a day. So how, how, how could you do that? Well, one way you could do that is you could assemble yourselves together daily to pray. You could assemble yourselves to, together daily to hear the word of God be taught, be taught. And then you could gather yourselves together daily and, and uh, exhort one another. See, um, the word exhort, really, I don't know if you've ever meditated it out or studied it out, but it's really a, a fairly interesting word. And it means to take what you've already been taught and to stir yourself up to take a hold of it anew or fresh, to keep it ever-present before you. It, it, it reminds me of the text that um, is found over in one of the letters that the apostle Peter wrote to the churches when he said, uh, I'm not going to be negligent to always put you in remembrance of these things, though you know them, that you might be established in this present truth. Well, this is what he's talking about right here. And evidently, it's uh, of necessity that we do these things right here so that we don't end up drawing back, so that we don't end up backsliding. But the number one thing that I wanted you to see, and of course, you know, you can spend all kinds of times on that other stuff. The number one thing that I wanted you to see is that in the 10th chapter, in the 38th verse, the Bible says that God has no pleasure in somebody who backslides. So, when, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when you and I attempted to backslide, we need to keep first and foremost in our minds that God will have absolutely no pleasure in that whatsoever. And so if our desire is to please God, and I don't know about you, but mine is, then when the adversary comes to us, you know, in one of many varied forms, he can come to you and try to manifest himself through the sin nature of your flesh. He can come and try to uh, 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 lure you away through the glitter and the glamour of the world system, or he can just come to you uh, uh, as himself and say, I, I, I want you to go on ahead and start backing off. I want you to go on ahead and start cooling off. And of course, many times he doesn't come and actually come right out and say that to you in those words. He just starts attacking you subtly, starts attacking you deceptively, and gets you to cool off just a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time. Until one day, you find that you're so far off of where you used to be in your diligence and your zealousness for the things of God that you have to actually say, I I I'm backslid. Amen? Amen. Now, it, uh, to give you a natural illustration of what we're talking about, I noticed when we first started uh, our prayer meetings up here at the church, uh, the Friday nights, especially in January of this year, you couldn't get a chair at, five thir uh, at uh, 6 o'clock. You couldn't get a chair. 
because the place was packed out. And so uh, I'm thinking, man, if I want to be able to get myself a chair, I'm going to have to get here at quarter or six, maybe even 5.30 to go on ahead and get myself a good seat. You know, where back then we, we had those tables when we were in the other building. And sometimes, you know, I like spreading out two or three different books and maybe writing a letter or something like that while I'm praying until we get involved in the fervent prayer. And so, you know, everybody took all the tables. They were all gone at 6 o'clock, so you had to get there early to go on ahead and get a seat. And everybody stayed until 11.30 at night. And then as you watch over the course of time, uh, you know, a number of months had gone by, and some of the same people that made absolutely sure that they were there at 6 o'clock and stayed until 11.30, some of those same identical people, just six months later, a dragging in, 7 o'clock, quarter past 7, 7.30. And as soon as the fervent prayer was over at 9.30, they gather all their stuff up and go on ahead and peel off. Well, what happened to those people? What happened to them over the course of those six months? Well, see, the devil comes in. He comes in subtly sometimes. He comes in deceptively sometimes. Sometimes he always doesn't come to you and reveal himself to you, you know, for who he is, because if he did, then you'd be more prone to resist him. But he masks himself and he disguises himself as uh, 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 sometimes legitimate desires. Sometimes he masks himself and disguises himself as uh, legitimate responsibilities. Now, that, that's one of his best ones right there. After all, you have responsibilities. You know, I mean, that one's probably one of the best ones. That one is probably the one that takes down more people than any other one. You have legitimate responsibilities. You must, as a good believer, make sure that you fulfill those legitimate responsibilities. Well, I've got no problem with fulfilling legitimate responsibilities, but when they start overtaking me and start robbing me, of the spiritual things that I know I'm supposed to do, then uh, I'm going to find it of necessity to baptize myself in a greater and more liberal portion of the wisdom of God to start seeing these things through God's eyes and from His perspective and see if maybe uh, we've got to go on ahead and start changing some of these things around here. Uh, to give you one example of that, over in the book of Acts chapter 6, it wasn't, uh, the church wasn't very old. The first century church, revival, had just really begun to break out. And it wasn't very long into it before the devil came and masked himself behind legitimate responsibilities and tried to get the apostles to leave the Word of God, to leave prayer, and to tend to the legitimate responsibility of seeing to it that the needs of the widows were met. But I like how they responded. I like how the apostles responded. They responded with the wisdom of God. They responded from a, from a spiritual perspective. And they said, it is not reason, the King James says, another translation says, it is not reasonable, or I like to say it this way, it's totally, completely out of the question that we should leave the Word of God to serve tables. So we're going to go on ahead and ask you to look among yourselves to choose seven men of honest report 
full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. One translation says practical sense, which narrows things right down greatly. <laughs> and uh, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. He said, whom we may appoint over this business. And then in verse 4 he says, but we, who? The apostles. We are going to give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of God's word. Now, keeping that in mind, you could go back into a scenario that we find in the Gospels between Mary, Martha, and Jesus. And if you go back and look at that story right there, there were many people gathered together. And you know that when there are many people gathered together, it isn't usually a very long period of time before the uh, subject of appetite comes up. You know, because you usually aren't together for many hours before somebody starts talking about food. Usually you aren't together very many minutes before somebody starts talking about food. You know, because a lot of people, their belly is their God. And so that very thing had taken place. You could go back in and look at it sometime. And so uh, uh, because of the amount of people that were gathered together, they knew that there was a lot of work that needed to be done in preparation for the food for that group of people. And so Martha got all caught up in the care of the thing. And at the same time that she was getting all caught up in the care of the thing, Jesus had gone off into another room and started teaching people. Well, Mary followed Jesus into the other room and sat at his feet to listen to the Word of God be taught. And you go back in and look at it, and Martha got all hair-lipped. She got all mad. She got all ticked off because she thought that Mary should be out there, there helping her in the kitchen get everything all ready for the people to eat. And I love Jesus' response because Martha came in and presented her problem before Jesus and said, Jesus, uh, uh, Martha, uh, Mary needs to be out here helping me in the kitchen. And Jesus said, no. He said, she has chosen the greater Thing, and of course I'm paraphrasing it now, by sitting at my feet and listening to the Word of God be taught. So when, when you look at that right there, it makes you ask yourself how many, you know, and you don't have to be a woman to be a Martha. <laughs> how many people in the church today are doing just exactly what Martha did versus how many people are choosing the greater thing and doing what Mary did. I mean, there are always going to be legitimate responsibilities. There are always going to be needs. There are always going to be things that need to be organized, things that need to be planned, things that need to be done. And there's nothing wrong with any of that. But when it robs you of the greater thing, when it robs you of the time that you should take every day to study the Word, to pray, to sow spiritual things into your life, when it robs you of that, then you have become, uh, uh, I'll go on ahead and use this word, an unbalanced person. Amen? Um, I was talking to somebody recently, and I was trying to get that over to them. I was doing just exactly what the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, where he said that we should provoke one another unto love and to good works. And this person uh, um, has been given a gift by God to organize things, and they're real, real good at it. 
but sometimes they get so caught up in that that they feel the necessity of a, a, a beginning to dive into that type of thing from the minute they wake up in the morning and totally, completely get so caught up into that that they don't take time to pray every day, that they don't take time to read God's Word every day, and so uh, uh, they organize the Spirit of God and the Word right out of the picture by using the very gift that God gave them. And I said to him, I said, this is what I was trying to get across to him. I said, why is it? I said that we, as human beings, as born-again believers, why is it that we don't have to take any conscious thought toward separating a portion of time every day out of our lives to eat physical food? I said, we don't even think about it. We just do it automatically because we've convinced ourselves that we need to eat every single day to maintain health and strength. And so we don't get up first thing in the morning, most of us don't, and say, all right, I'm going to eat from 8 to 9, I'm going to eat from 12 to 1, and I'm going to eat from 5 to 6. So I'm going to take those three hours every day, I'm going to dedicate that to sowing physical food into my physical body to maintain my strength and my health. No, most of us don't even give any thought to it. It comes as second nature to us. And yet, uh, uh, we'll, we'll take that much time every day, most people will, sometimes more than that, to sow physical food into your physical body to maintain health and strength, and yet our physical body is temporary. Our physical body is temporary. Our spirit man and our soul is eternal. And yet we won't take any time or very little time every single day and sow to the strength and the health and the maintenance of our spirit man. I said, we've got our priorities totally, completely, absolutely twisted when we'll spend more time every day sowing towards something that's temporal, something that's physical, something that has a, 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 the sin nature working in it that's subject to death, and we'll spend very little, if any time, every day sowing towards something that's eternal. I said, that to me is bad wrong. And you know, you have quite a time trying to get people to see that right there. Yeah. You know, when you try to tell them, uh, uh, we're, we're going to go on ahead and assemble ourselves together daily to read the Word of God and to pray and to uh, uh, provoke one another, and they think you're insane. I mean, they just think that, you, you, they think, my God, man, you've gone off the deep end here. And yet, they don't, they don't think it strange at all to assemble together every day either, uh, uh, you know, as a family or, you know, a group of people, church people, stuff like that, and eat physical food. Right. Well, that, that right there tells me that something's bad wrong. That tells me that they're, that they're drawing back. Yeah. I said, uh, I, I like what F.F. Bosworth said in his book, Christ the Healer. He said, we'll convince ourselves that we need three meals a day. He said, to maintain our health and our strength. But we'll feed our spirit man one cold spiritual snack a week and then wonder why 
we can't walk in victory in everything that has to do with our Christian life. Well, see, we've got to change our thinking. And we've got to stop, bless God, spending at least as much time sowing to spiritual things every single day as we do toward natural things. And I think we're going to see our priorities change a little bit. Amen. Now, go on ahead over to um, Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy chapter 28. And one of the first symptoms that we're going to look at is uh, when somebody loses their delight in serving God. There are a lot of people in the church today that have totally, completely lost their delight in serving God. And I like how one man uh, uh, put it, and we'll just go on ahead and give, you it, uh, give it to you quote for, uh, word for word. He said, when you look at the Christian service as a duty and not as an enjoyment, it is one of the main signs of a person who has become backslidden in their heart. When we look at the Christian life no longer as an enjoyment, but rather as a duty, then it is one of the first and one of the major or main signs of becoming backslidden in our hearts. Now, when, when I heard that, it immediately reminded me of this portion of text over here. And most of you are very, very well uh, aware and familiar with this portion of text. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 1 through 14 is the blessing of the law. And verses 15 through 68 is the curse of the law. And in verse um, 47 of chapter 28 in the book of Deuteronomy, it says, Because thou servest not the Lord thy God with joyfulness, you know, there's a lot of people. You, you, uh, probably the, the best time to see this is on a Sunday morning. You got your sour puss Sunday morning crew. And boy, I'll tell you, sometimes, I, I don't know about you, maybe, maybe this is just me, maybe I'm just a kind of, it ain't even funny. But sometimes, man, on Sunday morning, you just want to get up and just go right down through the congregation, start slapping people. You're, th you're thinking, why are you even here? Can, can you tell me why you even darkened the door of the church today? Because it's evident you really don't even want to be here. It's evident your heart's not in this. It's evident that you have no joy in what you're doing. It's evident that you don't delight in what you're doing. Why are you even doing it? Well, more often than not, it's simply the one time in the week that they will take to... Uh, 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 make God an addendum to their lifestyle. They, they, they figure, I should show up, uh, uh, you know, probably at least once a week on Sunday morning to go on ahead and salve my conscience and convince myself that I'm still all right in the sight of God. Well, see, <laughs> they've lost their delight. They've lost their joy in serving God. I don't know about you, but I enjoy, bless God, coming to church as often as I possibly can. I mean, really, it's all I ever think about. I'm thinking, man, when can we go to church again? I just love it. I love it. He says right here, now, now I want you to understand, remember, this that we're reading is under the curse. This is the curse now. Because thou servest not the Lord thy God with joyfulness. 
When we talk about coming to church or coming to a prayer meeting, it ought to fill our hearts with joy. It ought to fill our hearts with delight. We should look forward to it and go, oh, man, to church again? How many times a week do we need to go? Well, that person's backslid. That person's backslid. Amen? He says, and with gladness of heart for the abundance of all things, he said, because you're not serving God with joyfulness, because you're not serving God with gladness, he said, therefore shalt thou serve thine enemies. Well, who's your enemy? The filthy devil. Amen? He said, which the Lord thy God shall send against thee, now look at this, in hunger and in thirst and in nakedness and in want of all things. And he shall put a yoke of iron about, uh, about thy neck until he hath destroyed thee. Have you ever noticed that with the backslider, with somebody who's not serving the Lord with gladness and joyfulness of heart, they are always bound by the devil. They never walk in victory. And if they do, it's very, very short-lived. And it usually only takes place after a time of repentance where they got right with God for a day, for an hour, for a moment, and had a short spurt of victory, and then they went right back off after that short spurt of victory over into the land of bondage again because they stopped serving God. And I found out more times than not that they'll run to God in times of trouble, run to God in times of adversity, and then as soon as he bails them out, they go right back to living the way they were that brought the adversity and the trouble to begin with. If I'm going to have adversity, which I will, and if I'm going to have trouble, which I will, I want it to be adversity and trouble that righteousness and godliness brings on, not adversity and trouble that backsliddenness brings on. Amen? I want God to be with me in trouble and to be able to go on ahead and believe that he's going to deliver me. But the adversity and the trouble that I get into because I'm backslidden isn't trouble and adversity that God will be with me in. And it isn't trouble and adversity that he will deliver me out of. Because I left him. Because I abandoned him. If I'm going to get in trouble, which I do. If I'm going to have adversity, which I do. If I'm going to be persecuted, which I am. Then I want it to be trouble, adversity, and persecution which godliness and righteousness is brought on. Living for God is brought on. Amen? There's a great big difference between the two. Why? Because one, you'll be delivered out of. One, you have a total, complete, absolute legal right to believe God that bail you out, uh, that believe that God will bail you out of. And the other one, you have no right to believe that God will bail you out of it until you repent. Until you get right with Him. Do you understand that? So you can see right here that not serving God with joyfulness, not serving God with gladness of heart, brings a curse upon you. It literally, you could say, for the sake of illustration, paves an eight-lane highway right straight from hell right into your life with no speed limit. <laughs> in other words, it's just like the Autobahn over in Germany. The devil can come marching right out of hell with all of his legions of demonic hosts right toward you with everything that hell represents, sickness, disease, poverty, Notice he said you'll be in want for all things and hunger and in thirst and in nakedness. Everything that hell has will come marching right into your life when you're a backslider. 
I like one thing that one minister said recently in a, a, a message that I was listening to. He said one thing about the backslider. He said they're continually being condemned. He said they're condemned when they read their Bible because they see everything that they're not doing that they should be doing and everything that they shouldn't be doing that they are doing. And, and they're condemned when they don't read their Bible because they know they should be. They're condemned when they come to the prayer meeting because they know they're a backslider. And when they start praying, God's trying to get a hold of them to tell them to go on ahead and repent and get right with Him. And yet they're condemned when they don't pray because they know they should be praying. They're condemned when uh, 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 they go out witnessing because they know that they're lukewarm, that they're half-hired, that they're backslidden. And, and they, uh, uh, they're telling people about a Jesus that they won't even serve with the whole heart. And yet they're condemned when they don't tell anybody about Jesus. They're condemned in everything that they do because they know they're living wrong. That is the way of a backslider. It's a hard and a rough road to walk down. Now, go on ahead over to uh, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3. And look at what he says in verse 5. 2 Timothy chapter 3. In verse 5. Actually, uh, uh, we, we can't take time to look at it all, but you might want to go on ahead and make a note that verses 1 through 8 especially are all symptoms of a backslidden heart. But in verse 5, actually the latter part of verse 4, I'd like you to look at that. He said that these who are reprobate concerning the faith one translation says counterfeit concerning the faith. Or when it comes to faith, they're found to be imposters. He said that they are lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. They have a form, an outline, a similitude of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. From such, turn away. How would a person deny the power thereof? Well, I can tell you how. It's by refusing to involve yourself in that which brings the power of God on the scene, which is maintaining a consistent, fervent, ongoing, enduring life of prayer. Amen? That is a, a, another symptom of a backslidden heart. Somebody who has a form, an outline, a similitude of godliness, but denies the power thereof, they're a lover of pleasure more than a lover of God. Hallelujah to Jesus. Now, look over in the 37th Psalm. Psalm chapter, uh, actually, it's, Psalms doesn't have chapters. Uh, the 37th Psalm. And look at what it says in verse 4. He says, delight thyself also in the Lord. Delight thyself also in the Lord. Notice, God wants you to take delight in Him. Delight yourself in Him. And He will give you the desires of your heart. Turn over to the first Psalm. See, we need to ask ourselves all the time, are we still delighting in the Lord? Are we delighting in assembling ourselves together? Are we delighting in our worship? Do, do we delight in giving offerings unto the Lord? 
Do we delight in reading his word? Do we delight in meditating upon his word? Are we full of joy every time that we think about serving God? If we're not, then it's a symptom that we are backslidden in our heart. Notice what he says in verse 2 of Psalm 1. He said, but his delight, see we're looking at that word delight, his delight is in the law of the Lord. You could say his delight is in the word of God. And in that word or in that law does he meditate both day and night. I like one thing Brother Jeremiah brought out the other day, and, and, and it's something that I've noticed all the time for, for a length of time. You get around some people who call themselves believers, who have the audacity to call themselves Christians, and they will delight in holding conversation with you revolving around anything other than that which has to do with God and His Word and the church and the work of God. They'll talk about the weather. Well, who gives a rip about the weather? The weather is going to be here today. The weather is going to be here tomorrow. The weather is going to be here next month and next year. It's always going to be good or it's always going to be bad, one of the two. So who really cares about it? Why involve your conversation in things which don't amount to anything? You get some believers that their delight is in talking about sports. Well, I, I have no interest at all in sports. None. Zero. I like one uh, proverb. He says, he that loveth sport shall be a poor man. And you hear some people say, well, tell that to Michael Jordan, who's worth so many millions of dollars. Well, what good's that going to do him if he gains the whole world and yet loses his own soul? Are you with me? Some people have made sports their God. It's their God. They eat it, sleep it, drink it, meditate on it day and night. There are some good Christian men and women in sports, and thank God for that. And there's nothing wrong with that if that's their occupation, their vocation, as long as they don't make it their God. But a lot of people have made that their God. If they've made it their God, then they will be a poor man. It doesn't matter how much money they got. God doesn't measure prosperity by how much money you've got. He measures prosperity according to uh, uh, how your soul thinks. According to 3 John verse 2, he said, even as your soul prospers. Hallelujah to Jesus. So right here, he says, we should delight in the law of the Lord. Delight in the word of God. I love associating with people, and yet it's a very difficult thing because they're hard to find. I love associating with people who like talking about God's Word. I like associating with people who want to talk about the things of God and, and want to work for God and do things for God. I just love getting around people and talking about those things. Why? Because that is my passion. And yet, boy, I'll tell you, it's quite a project just trying to find people like that. You know what I'm saying, do you? Look at, um, and, and, well, I mean, all that does right there is just goes on ahead and reveals to you the nature of, uh, or should I say the condition of the church today. <laughs> look, look at uh, the 40th Psalm. The 40th Psalm. Look at what he says in verse 7. 
Uh, actually, verse 8, rather. Psalm 40, verse 8. He said, I delight to do thy will. Oh, man, would to God we had a church full of people who delighted to do his will. Amen. I'm not talking about just here at this church. I'm talking about in every church, the church as a whole corporately all across the earth. Would to God we had a church just in North America that delighted to do his will. I'll tell you that things would look different, wouldn't they? I delight. This is the psalmist David. He said, I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. And like we've said before when we were teaching on the subject of prayer, the Word of God is the will of God. So how can we delight to do His will if our hearts are not full of His Word? We won't even know what His will is. So we've got to get full of His Word, and then we'll know what His will is, and then we can delight to do it. Hallelujah to Jesus. Look at um, Malachi in chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3, we're looking, focusing on the word delight. Malachi chapter 3. See, God wants, us to, God wants us to delight in Him. He wants us to delight in His Word. He wants us to delight in His will. He wants us to delight in prayer. Hallelujah to Jesus. I mean, no question about the fact, you know, we can't... Uh, uh, um, deceive you into thinking that you're in your flesh you're always going to want to delight in serving God. No, I like what Paul said over in the book of Romans chapter 7, I believe it was. He said, in my flesh, he said, there's nothing that wants to serve God. Of course, I'm paraphrasing it. He said, but uh, uh, in my flesh, there's no part of my flesh that wants to serve God. But we're not in the flesh. Hallelujah to Jesus, but rather... In the spirit. In uh, Malachi chapter 3 in verse 1, he says, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple. Now look at this. Even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Hallelujah to Jesus. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. Do you delight in the messenger of the covenant? Do you delight in the Lord whom ye seek? Well, we should, and we're supposed to. And one thing that we need to keep first and foremost before us all the time is, if, if, the, if we don't delight in the Lord, if we don't serve him with the abundance of joy, then he said, we bring the curse upon ourselves. We'll find ourselves in hunger. We'll find ourselves in thirst. We'll find ourselves in nakedness and in want. I don't know about you, but that don't sound like nothing I want in my life. And we'll have a yoke of bondage about our neck. I'm not touching that at all. I'm just going to continue serving God with gladness and with joy and delight. Turn to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. Look at what he says in verse 22. He said, For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. 
You can see right here that Paul was walking in light of all those verses we just got done reading over in the Old Testament. He was delighting in the Word of God. Why? Because he knew that it would profit him spiritually. He knew that it would profit his inward man, the part of him that was eternal. It reminds me of that text over in 2 Corinthians chapter, um, chapter, latter part of chapter 4 where he says, Though the outward man perisheth, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. He said this light affliction, which is but for a moment, will work for me a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. What was the light affliction? The light affliction was sowing to the spirit and putting the flesh to death. The light affliction was the constant war that the flesh, the devil, and the world would bring against you to try to keep you from sowing towards spiritual things. It's a, he called it a light affliction. So, you know, like when, like when we were praying this morning, and every once in a while it's like that, where it just seems like time comes to a total, complete, absolute dead standstill. He called that a light affliction. When your mind is just, just trying to pull you off into one of a million different directions, that sin nature of the flesh, that kind of mind, he called it a light affliction. Why? He said, if you'll work that light affliction in you, he said, it'll cause to be manifested on the inside of you a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. The presence of God will come, uh, uh, come upon you and I stronger and stronger and stronger. It'll actually become a weight that'll manifest itself with the power of God resting upon you. Amen? So, one of the symptoms of a backslidden heart is when we look at the Christian service as a duty and no longer as an enjoyment. And we looked at those verses right there to show you that it is of necessity that we take delight in serving God. Now, another uh, manifestation of a backslidden heart is when we will search the Word of God diligently to find out what our minimum requirements are. We'll search, uh, I mean, I, I know people that do that. They will search the Word of God diligently to find out how little they have to do to stay saved. Well, that's a manifestation of a backslidden heart. I've had people before, when you teach on the subject of tithing and giving offerings, they'll search the Word of God diligently to try to get out of giving. <laughs> that's a manifestation of a backslidden heart. When you teach on the fact that pre uh, 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 people should gather together often to pray, I've known people that'll search the word diligently to try to find out uh, 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 if there were any examples in the New Testament of people who didn't hardly pray at all. When you teach on the subject of fasting, you'll have people search the word of God diligently to try to find out what's the, the smallest fast you can do and still stay, uh, stay saved. Well, you don't have to fast at all to stay saved. We aren't talking about doing that which is necessary to stay saved. Uh, I know, it's, uh, I consider this quite amusing myself. You get some people, they, uh, they uh, teach people what to do to cope. 
how to cope with this, how to cope with that, how to cope with this, how to cope with that. I don't believe that God has called the church to teach people how to cope. I believe he's called the church to teach people how to overcome. And there's a great difference between coping and overcoming. Who cares about learning what to do to cope? Let's go on ahead and learn what we must do to overcome. Amen? So, if we're going to search the Word of God, we shouldn't search the Word of God diligently to find out what the minimum requirement is upon us as believers to stay in right standing with God. We should search the Word of God diligently to find out what God expects of us to give Him great pleasure and great joy. Because I want to give Him great pleasure and great joy, don't you? Now go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Another symptom of a backslidden heart is that when backsliders will associate with each other and compare themselves among themselves so that they won't feel bad about themselves. Have you ever noticed how that a backslider will never want to spend much time in association with somebody who's on fire for God? Because it always makes them feel bad about themselves. It always reveals to them just exactly what type of spiritual condition they're in. And so they won't want to go on ahead and spend much time in association with somebody who has a great zeal for God, who is uh, on fire for God, you could say, or fervent in heart toward the things of God. No, they'll always search diligently, and usually it doesn't have to be a very diligent search because uh, uh, they're in a multitude around us. They search for people who are as lukewarm, as half-hearted, as backslid as they are, and they'll begin comparing themselves among themselves. I like one thing that um, Jeremiah brought out recently when he was talking about these um, <clears throat> men in the church today that walk around wearing earrings. And he said, did you get that idea from a man of God who was mightily anointed by God? Or did you get that idea from some punk gangster out in the world? You know, where were you patterning your lifestyle after? Is it after a man of God who's anointed by God, who's doing great things for God? Or are you patterning yourself after some punk out in the world system. Well, I notice Benny Hinn don't have no earrings. I notice Brother, uh, Brother Hagin don't wear an earring. I notice Peter Youngren don't wear an earring. See, all that is is signs and uh, forms of rebellion. See, where do we get our ideas? What do we pattern our life after? That right there will tell you a lot about yourself. See, who are you comparing yourself with? Now look at what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, in verse 12. For we dare not make ourselves of the number, or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves. But they, measuring themselves by themselves, and comparing themselves among themselves, 
are not wise. Now I'm going to go ahead and read that to you out of the old 26 translation here. Listen to this right here. In uh, the 12th verse, it says, um, Of course, we shouldn't dare include ourselves in the same class as those who write their own testimonials or even to compare ourselves with them. He said they tr uh, their trouble is that they are only comparing themselves with each other and measuring themselves against their own little ideas. Another translation says, they measure themselves by their own yardstick and compare themselves with themselves. Therefore, they prove that they don't have much good sense. Another one says, what fools are they to measure themselves by themselves to find in themselves their own standard of comparison? Well, see, if you're going to go on ahead and measure yourself by yourself or measure yourself in light of somebody who is backslid, then you're a fool. And that's another symptom of a backslider. A backslider will always find somebody who's worse than them to compare themselves with. We'll say, uh, let, let me just give you a couple of natural illustrations. Um, you may have gone on ahead and say, well, you know, the Bible said over in the book of uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5, I believe it is, that uh, Paul gave Timothy instructions to uh, not drink water anymore, but to drink a little bit of wine for his often stomach's infirmities. And you know, my stomach, you know, uh, you know grunts and growls every once in a while and, and gives me a fit once in a while, so I find it of necessity to go on ahead and take the same counsel that Paul gave to uh, uh, his own son in the faith, Timothy. And so I'm just going to go on ahead and start tapping the bottle once in a while. I'm just going to go on ahead and start drinking a little bit of wine once in a while for my often stomach's infirmities. You know, I mean, after all, if it was good enough for Timothy and he was a pastor of a church, then why shouldn't I just go on ahead and do the same thing? After all, I'm not drinking whiskey like I used to drink. After all, I'm not tipping, uh, uh, you know, the bottle of 151 Bacardi rum or, 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 or 90 proof vodka. I mean, it's just wine. I mean, what can a little bit of wine do? I'm not like old so-and-so down the street. And so you start compare. what you do is you'll always compare yourself with somebody that's worse than you are. Well, I mean, I pray, you know, an hour a week. I'm not like old so-and-so who I happen to know don't pray at all. I mean, I might not read my Bible every day, but I'm not like old so-and-so who I know never reads their Bible. I mean, I might be looking at porno magazines, but uh, I mean, that can't be that bad. After all, I'm not like old so-and-so who's uh, actually literally out there committing adultery. You know, we'll do that in the flesh. Yeah. We'll always find somebody that's worse than we are or that we've convinced ourselves is worse than we are, and we'll compare ourselves with them. Well, right here he said, you're not wise to do that. No, 
I'll tell you who we need to compare ourselves with. We need to compare ourselves with the Word. We need to compare ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you one thing right now, it don't take a long time going into the Word before I find out I need a lot of help. Before I find out that I could never pray too much. Before I find out that I could never meditate too much. That I could never read the Word of God too much. That I could never go to, uh, uh, to church too much. Because there's just so many things that I need to change where I don't measure up. And I just need to go on ahead and, and change. So why not glare and, and, and stare into the perfect law of liberty and continue in that? Why not compare ourselves with the Word of God and just go on ahead and live in a constant state of repentance? Because you'll need to. Amen? I don't know about you, but I find it a necessity when I spend any amount of time in the Word, any amount of time in prayer, I need, need to live in a constant, ongoing, everyday state of repentance. Well, that right there will keep you humble. It'll keep you from getting puffed up and thinking that you're a spiritual hot rod. Are you with me? Another example or a symptom of a backslidden heart is that when we are willing to exalt temporal relationships above spiritual relationships. I'll tell you, that one right there, that one right there gets a lot of folks. Well, you know, I'd come to church, Brother Nelson, but my spouse told me I couldn't. Huh. How many times have we heard that one? Well, I'd come to church more often than I do, but so-and-so, you know, whatever type of relationship, parent, you know, my kids told me, you know, that they wanted to stay home tonight. So I stayed home to pet their flesh. No sense in training them up in the ways of the Lord so that when they're old, they won't depart from it. I'll let them rule the house. I'll forget that I'm the parent and they're the kid. Or, um, you know, my, my, my wife told me I couldn't come. My husband told me I couldn't come. Uh, uh, one of my relatives told me that I was becoming extreme. And so therefore, I just got to go on ahead and back off. You know, because after all, I want to win them. Well, I'll tell you one thing right now, you're never going to win them by revealing unto them a lifestyle of total, complete compromise. Uh, let's go on ahead and look at one example. Go over to Matthew chapter 10. If anybody knew the proper relationship between spiritual things and temporal things, between... Uh, uh, spiritual relationships and physical relationships, it would have been the Lord Jesus Christ, wouldn't you say? Hallelujah to Jesus. In Matthew chapter 10, in verse 34, it says, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace but a sword. For I am come to set a, a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foes shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. I don't know how in the world anybody could misinterpret that. Go over uh, two chapters to Matthew chapter 12. Here's a good example of somebody who had his priorities in their proper place. 
that being the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, and He is our chief example. Verse 46, While He yet talked to the people, behold, His mother and His brethren stood without, desiring to speak with Him. In other words, they wanted a special audience. Then one said unto Him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren stand without, desiring to speak with thee. But he answered and said unto him that told him, Who is my mother? And who are my brethren? And he stretched forth his hand toward his disciples and said, Behold, my, my mother and my brethren. For whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same is my brother and sister and mother. Well, I mean, that kind of takes all the wind out of the sails of the backsliders, don't it? He said right here, you want to know who my mother is? You want to know who my brothers are and who my sisters are? Those that do the will of God. But notice that in the flesh, the devil tried using his relatives to obtain special audience with him and to take him away from the spiritual things that he was doing. Can you see that right there? He tried, the devil tried to use natural relationships. I mean, boy, he works overtime in that area right there. He tried to use natural relationships. He tried to use relatives to pull Jesus away from the spiritual things that he was involved in. And yet Jesus could see beyond the veil of the flesh. He could see who was behind the motivation of his relatives and said, who is my mother? Who are my brothers and my sisters but those who do the will of God? I, I, I'll just tell you the way it is. You do whatever you want with it. This is me personally, and some people think you're just totally completely out in left field. But uh, I, I'm just basing my actions upon what the Word of God said. If I had a relative that I hadn't seen in 25 years that flew 3,000 miles across the world to come see me, I wouldn't stay home to visit with them if it was at a time when we were scheduled to meet as a church. I'd say if you flew 3,000 miles across the earth to see me and I hadn't seen you in 25 years, then uh, I, I, I appreciate that and I consider that an honor. But while there's a church meeting going on, I'm going to be in church. And if you want to see me during that period of time, you'll have to come to church with me. And that's all there is to it. Period. Why? Because I'm not going to exalt my natural relationship with them above my spiritual relationship with uh, uh, my brothers and sisters in the Lord who are doing the will of God. I mean, it's all right there in the Word. Can you see it? Go over to... Um, Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21. Let's read verses 10 through 17. Luke chapter 21, verses 10 through 17. Then said he unto them, this is Jesus speaking now, Nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And great earthquakes shall be in divers places, famines, pestilences, fearful sights, and great signs shall it be from heaven. But before all these, 
They shall lay hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and into prisons, being brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake, and it shall turn to you for a testimony. Settle it therefore in your hearts not to meditate before what you shall answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries shall not be able to gainsay nor resist. And you shall be betrayed. You shall be betrayed both by parents and brethren and kinsfolks and friends and some of you they shall cause to be put to death. And you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. Can you see that right there? Hallelujah to Jesus. Now let's go on ahead and look at another symptom of a backslidden heart. Another symptom of a backslidden heart is when we are willing to exalt the social aspects of Christianity above the spiritual aspects. When you and I are willing to exalt the social aspects of Christianity above the spiritual aspects of Christianity. Now, go over to Acts um, chapter 2 and we see right here that there is a social aspect to Christianity and I'll be the first blessed God one to admit that I enjoy it as much as the next person does. I like getting together with brothers and sisters of like precious faith and breaking bread together. Or should we say cutting the ribeyes together and eating out of chokes. I enjoy that. I mean, I look forward to that with great anticipation. <laughs> but if I had to choose between that and praying together with them, I'd choose praying first. Are you with me? Now, right here in Acts chapter 2, he reveals to us that there is a social aspect to Christianity, but there's also a spiritual aspect. And we can find in the Word of God that when people begun to exalt the social above the spiritual, the church uh, uh, failed to be a spiritual institution and became a social one, and eventually ended up evolving into a den of thieves. In verse um, 46, it says, And they, continuing daily, with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. Well, that's, a, I mean, there's no question about the fact right there. That's very social, isn't it? But you go back, go back to the 42nd verse. It says, and they continued steadfastly. One translation says they gave constant attention to. They were regularly present. They devoted themselves unto these things. And he mentions four things. In breaking of bread. Well, uh, I'm skipping one here. In the apostles' doctrine. That's spiritual, isn't it? And fellowship. And in breaking of bread and in prayers. Well, in the apostles' doctrine, no question about the fact that's spiritual. Fellowship, that's social and spiritual. Isn't it? When we get together in fellowship, there's an aspect of, uh, of uh, uh, social 
as well as spiritual in fellowship. And then breaking of bread, well, I mean, that's, that's social, isn't it? Eating together and in prayers. So there is a social aspect to Christianity, and we enjoy it. We thank God for it. But there's also a spiritual aspect as well. And I won't take time to turn there right now because we're running out of time. But uh, you might want to go on ahead and take a note of this, and you can go in and look at it. We've taught some on it in days gone by. One of the, probably one of the best examples that I know of in the whole New Testament that he gives of people that exalted the social above the spiritual and ended up getting themselves in a whole heap of trouble is in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And of course, he's identifying the nation of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt in the wilderness, and it said that they sat down to eat and to drink, and they rose up to play. They should have been doing spiritual things while Moses was on the mountain, and yet they dove into social things, which evolved into sin and idolatry, and it ended up costing them their inheritance. And we find that mentioned in detail in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now, we'll just go on ahead and give the rest of these to you and give you the references, and you can go on ahead and look them up later in your own study time. Another example or a symptom of a backslidden heart is when a person's hunger or thirst for righteousness and the things of God begins to dissipate. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, that when we hunger and thirst after righteousness, we shall be filled. In Acts chapter 2, we just get done reading that in verse 46. In Acts chapter 5 and verse 42. In Acts chapter 19, verses 9 and 10, he talks about devoting themselves continually on a daily basis to spiritual things. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 2 says, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Well, when a person's desire begins to dissipate, when they begin losing their hunger and thirst for the things of God, those are the symptoms of a backslidden heart. Another symptom of a backslidden heart is when people are willing to obey, God, uh, obey man rather than God. When we're willing to obey man rather than God, that's a symptom of a backslidden heart. And he gives us a couple of examples of that in Acts chapter 4 and verse 19. In Acts chapter 5 and verse 29, when the apostles were being held in question concerning the miracle of the man at the gate called Beautiful, they were commanded by the religious hierarchy of the day not to teach or to preach anymore in the name of Jesus. And they, uh, uh, the apostles said, whether it's right in the sight of God to obey you rather than God, you decide. But we have already made up our minds we are going to obey God rather than man. Would to God that the church had that same type of attitude today. Would to God that we chose to obey God rather than some denomination. Amen. Uh, another symptom of a backslidden heart. John chapter 12 
verses 42 and 43. When the praise of man means more to a person than the praises of God. When the praise of man means more to a person than the praises of God. Over in that text right there, the reference that we gave you to, uh, there were certain Pharisees that believed in Jesus, but for fear of being kicked out of the synagogue, they would not publicly profess Jesus as Lord. They were afraid of being kicked out of the synagogue. They were afraid of what people would say to them. And it says very plainly, for they loved the praises of man more than they did the praises of God. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm going to fall in love with the praises of God. I don't care what any man says. Let him praise you. But I, I found out more times than not that ones that praise you today are the ones who are inserting the pearly handled dagger in your back tomorrow. Another example, another symptom of a backslidden heart is when the people of God are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. And that word dignities right there comes from a Greek word where we get the English, uh, it comes from a Greek word, doxa, D-O-X-A, which is also translated in different places in the New Testament, glory. In other words, they're not afraid to speak evil of anything that has to do with the glory of God. And he talks about that over in the book of Jude. And he talks about that especially over in the book of uh, 2 Peter chapter 2. Where he said that these men who are serving their own ungodly lusts, their scoffers, their mockers in the last days, he said they are not afraid. They have no fear of speaking evil of anything having to do with the glory of God. The dignities, the ones who walk in the glory of God. You could say men who walk in the glory of God, women who walk in the glory of God, or anything that has to do with the glory of God. You got some people, uh, you know, for example, little badmouth Benny Hinn and make fun of uh, uh, the manifestations of the spirit that he walks in. Well, I'll tell you, that's, that's a dangerous thing to do. Another manifestation of a backslidden heart uh, you can take these two references, Matthew chapter 15 and verse 6, and Mark chapter 7 and verse 13, is when we uh, exalt the traditions of man above the Word of God. I mean, that right there is a message in and of itself. We'll get into that sometime. Another manifestation of a backslidden heart is in Matthew chapter 15 and verse 8, when we serve God with our lips while our heart is far from Him. That happens a lot. Another symptom of a backslidden heart, last one that we'll leave you with, is when a person is willing to harbor strife, bitterness, or unforgiveness in their heart toward another person. That's a symptom of a backslidden heart. Amen? <laughs> you do that right there, and your prayers don't even be heard. The Bible teaches Jesus taught that in Mark chapter 11. He said, uh, when you stand praying, forgive if you have ought against any, so that your Father which is in heaven may forgive you. For if you forgive not, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive you your trespasses. So we cannot, as born-again believers, afford the luxury. If you, you know, I mean, of course, we're being sarcastic when we say that. 
We cannot afford the luxury of harboring strife, bitterness, or unforgiveness in our heart toward anybody for anything, no matter what they've done, because to do so is a symptom of a backslidden heart. Amen? Let's go on ahead and stand. You get anything out of that? Hallelujah. And when, when we read these things, when we meditate upon these things, another, we'll just go on ahead and add this, another symptom of a backslidden heart is when we'll take the type of word that was delivered to us today and say, well, I can think of so-and-so who fits this category, and I can think of so-and-so who should have been here to hear that when we don't take any of it and apply it to ourselves. <laughs> oh, well, I didn't see myself in there anywhere. Well, another symptom of a backslidden heart is having a pharisaical, self-righteous attitude. Uh, I mean, oh, I can think of, oh, oh, there's so many people that I can think of that fit into one of all these different categories, but I'm not in there anywhere. You're backslidden because you're self-righteous. So, uh, thank you for all those amens, all that enthusiasm. That right there is probably one of the chief symptoms of a backslidden heart is being a self-righteous Pharisee, despising others and looking down upon them and putting yourself on a pedestal and convincing yourself that you're more spiritual than everybody else. That, that's another symptom of a backslidden heart. Father, we bless you and we magnify your holy name and we thank you for your holy written word. Father, we are going to do just exactly what your word said. We are going to examine ourselves. We're going to avoid the temptation to examine everybody else. We are going to avoid the temptation to become the chief of police in the body of Christ. But we're going to examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. And we're going to live in a constant ongoing, perpetual state of repentance as we stare into the perfect law of liberty and continue therein. And we thank you and praise you and magnify you that you will empower us by your Spirit to do that very thing and to stay clothed with humility knowing that you resist the proud. You set yourself up in an unmovable, unchangeable position, militaristic in fashion, against the proud while you give grace unto the lowly in heart and the humble and contrite in spirit. And we thank you and praise you for it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You are dismissed.